Well, good morning once again. My name is Nick Wilkes. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet, I have the privilege of working with our middle school and high school students here at Chapel Rock, where we take seriously, all of us together, the opportunity that we have to disciple and help lead the next generation in Christ. So grateful for the opportunity to be here. Casey is grateful for the opportunity to be in Joplin, Missouri, where this weekend, this week, he's had the opportunity to hold his grandbaby for the very first time. So I'm sure uh, if you've ever had that experience here, it's like none other. So uh, he's, he's enjoying time with his family um, this week, and we're grateful for that. <clears throat> I'm thankful to continue this series with you from Judges chapter 6 through 8. So we're going to be in the text, and we're going to hear a lot of this story this morning. So if you have your Bible, or if there's a Bible in the pew in front of you, or you have a device that you have that you can uh, be on your Bible app and check that out, uh, love to have that in front of you as we dig into it and go through a story that's going to do a lot of things for us uh, this morning. Um, it's, and, and I believe it's a story that gets at the heart of some, some big things that we even see happening in our day and age that are heavy upon us. One, I believe this is a story, story that gets at the heart of what it takes to bring freedom from oppression. That's a biggie. Um, it's a story that also helps us to peel back some of the layers that can lead to breaking the cycle of generational poverty. And it's also a story that can help bring lasting peace in the midst of a world that's gone mad with violent conflict. Do I have your attention here this morning? All of this comes through one man who starts out being really kind of a pretty reluctant leader, and his name is Gideon. So those are tall orders, I know, but I'm here to tell you today that there is hope, as we've already been thinking about, we've been dwelling on in our time of worship this morning, thinking about the hope that's found in the presence of God, that's made known through his word, that's made known through his Holy Spirit's presence in the work of Jesus in the lives of his people. Those things give me great confidence in spite of the overwhelming difficulties that life can sometimes bring our way. So as we continue this morning, would you just bow with me for a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into our message. Lord, help us. Help us to see you. Lord, help us hold on to you. Help us hold on to your work in this world. We need you. We have nothing without you. Lord, would you be in and through all that we think, all that we do, all that we feel, and all that we live today and always. And Lord, may it be all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're looking at the story of Gideon in our Desperate Time series in Judges. And if you had the opportunity to be with us last week, Casey laid a great foundation. Uh, it's really worth listening to. If you didn't have an opportunity to, to hear it, uh, a sermon that he preached on the story of Ehud, the original 007, as he said this past, uh, this past week, but laid a good foundation for what's happening throughout the book of Judges. And today we're exploring the story of Gideon. So maybe you've heard of Gideon, maybe you haven't. Today we're going to journey through a story where an unlikely 
and as I said, even a little bit reluctant leader, uh, become, character, a reluctant character becomes a leader, uh, even a warrior, he's eventually called, in the midst of some unimaginable circumstances. And he realizes through that that the only thing that did and the only thing that could make any difference in his life was the presence and power of God at work in him. So I want to give a brief nod to the setting before we jump into the text. Here's a brief nod. Things aren't good. The Israelites, once again, had done evil. It's a pattern, as Casey mentioned, that we see in Judges, and we'll see that right away in the text. And as a result, the Lord had allowed the Midianites to invade and ravage the land for seven years because they had turned their eyes to wor- from worshiping the one true God to the false gods of the peoples that surrounded them. Um, sometimes bad things just happen. We know that. Sometimes bad things happen because we're given a free will and we make choices that lead to some of those bad things happen. Sometimes bad things happen because of the fallen nature of humanity, but sometimes bad things happen as a part of divine judgment. And the reason that Israel is having a rough go, to say the least, in Judges 6, um, is because they had become comfortable with evil. So we're going to dig in, uh, chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and hear about this story. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, in caves, and in strongholds. Wherever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped out on the land. They ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Sounds like a rough go, eh? Don't worry, we're just getting started in this story. So we continue, verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you lived, but you have not listened to me. Now, the situation seems a little impossible, especially when your oppressors are described like swarms of locusts, right? I mean, that's, that's a bad day. Impossible to count, invading and ravaging the land, ruining crops, sparing no livestock for an agricultural society whose livelihood was based on their livestock, on their fields, on the harvest, um, their, their very way of feeding their family. 
the ways that they depended on for their livelihood, for their economy, was being laid to waste. That's a rough season. That's, that's some difficult days. If you have ever, been, have ever felt like maybe you've been in a place where you're, you're under attack, it's like everything that, that is at the core of who you are, your livelihood, uh, maybe the ways that you've spent trying to survive, trying to, uh, to provide for your family, you can probably relate well to this passage. Uh, when it comes to feeling like whatever you do is under attack, or maybe uh, your means of getting by has been pulled out from underneath you, you understand a little bit about what they're going through here. Now, while I'm, I'm not saying that's always for the same reasons, sometimes it can be. And the key phrase here from the, from the prophet from Joshua chapter 6, verse 10, is, but you have not listened to me. And many, there are many areas where when it comes to listening to God, uh, there can be areas where we fall short. And while the grace of Jesus completely removes the guilt of sin, it removes the punishment that we deserve, our future punishment for sin by what Jesus did on the cross, what we just celebrated as we came around the communion table, sometimes the consequences of that sin are still things that we kind of fight to pick up the pieces from. Sometimes not listening to God like they were working through um, in those difficult places uh, can, can, can lead to tricky situations. When we talk about uh, pursuing wholeness, when we talk about bringing our brokenness to Jesus, if we're really going to do that, you know, the trickiness of walking through those steps can be difficult. We've got a new driver in our house, in the Wilkes house. I don't see her. I didn't warn her I was going to tell her this story. Uh, but uh, our 15-year-old, Nora, she's, she's got a permit recently. And when it comes to listening to instructions while we're driving down the road, as you can imagine, if you've ever been there, you know, that is of the utmost importance. You know, it's like, well, what are we going to do when we come up to this intersection? What are we going to do uh, when we're pulling out into traffic? You need to listen. We don't have that break like the, you know, fancy driver's ed instructors have. You know, it's just listen to the instructions, anticipate. But I have to say, that's not something that ever stops, you know, even after we, after we get comfortable behind the wheel. Because I'm the one with my car full of my family that ended up straddling the median at full speed, going down Rockville Road the other way, much to my embarrassment, wondering, like, well, how is this going to, you know, end? Uh, what's, what's it going to result? And I had to swallow a little bit about my pride when it came to, uh, you know, some basic instructions for driving down the road that uh, I wasn't doing well at. Uh, my wife uh, was telling me uh, just the other day when she was picking up the girls from school, curbed it bigger than life, just boom, you know, nailed, nailed the curb, and the girls are all like, what in the world, Mom? You know, how, you know, how, you know, how, how did this happen? You know, so while we're, while we're working through this, this process of training to listen, you know, it's, it's always a reflection to uh, not look too far away from what we all need to continue to stay humble in. And so like Israel, you know, they were experiencing the consequences of some of their mistakes. Sometimes we, we experience the consequences of our mistakes of not listening. Sometimes that can lead to, has led to, a loss of livelihood. Sometimes it can lead to uh, things feeling like they've been ravaged 
or wrecked, much in the same way Israel felt, like our normal or our family or our relationships. Um, the things can be uh, difficult in, in trying to get back to a place where we trust. We, like Israel, have known conflict. We've lived in oppression. We know what it, li- what it looks like sometimes to be impoverished and to be in the place where sometimes other people take advantage of even our brokenness, how that mounds trauma upon trauma that can sometimes come from our own sin, from not listening, but it sometimes comes as the result of others' sins and the ways that that affects us. We all know that that tension can lead to ourselves. It can lead to other people. It can lead to, to humans, brothers, sisters, moms, and dads being in a desperate place which is right where we meet this guy named Gideon in our text today. So chapter 6, verse 11 says, The angel of the Lord came, and he sat down under the oak in Ophrah. You know, kind of like Oprah, but you got to get a little in there, like Ophrah. You know, so if you want to practice that with your neighbor right now or later, you know, that's fine. And i got to say, There are tons of names in here. I think Casey was like, oh yeah, Judges 6, 7, 8, like Nick's going to have to wade through those names, so good luck, you know, with that. So we're just going to, we're going to go with confidence today, and you know, it's, it's, it's just going to be, you know, the Nickism of it, maybe. So, sits down under the oak in Ophrah, angel of the Lord, that belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Strange place to thresh wheat in the wine press. But when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I love this, what comes next. And this is a pattern we're going to see a couple times. But Gideon says, Pardon me, Lord. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders? that the ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So let me translate here for just a second. Gideon says, say what? Mighty warrior? Are you kidding me? Like, have you seen me threshing wheat up in this wine press over here, hiding from the Midianites? And you come over here, And you say, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior? What? No, no. You got got the wrong guy. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. Maybe someone calls on you in a personal way. Maybe they tap you on the shoulder. And and you're like, wait, me? Are you talking talking to me? You know, no, you've got the wrong person. Like, I'm, I'm not up for that. Or let's up the game here for a second. Maybe you felt like the Lord has tapped you on the shoulder for something. Maybe there's been a situation before where you've thought, man, somebody needs to do something about this. You've been you like convinced in that. Maybe you have even hit your knees fervently and you've been praying about that, that the Lord would send someone. And then... He begins to lead you to think that that somebody might be you. The Lord's prompting you. Maybe he has prompted you, and you're like, uh, are you sure you've got the right person here? 
So Judges chapter 6, verse 14 says, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I wonder, what's the strength that you have when you don't feel like you have any strength? <laughs> I mean, we can get focused here, um, and, and if you know the story of Gideon, you kind of can go quickly to this mighty warrior place because you know there's a battle that's about ready to come. But if you go to the mighty warrior place and you wonder, is, like, is that being descriptive right there or is that being prescriptive? Is that a foreshadowing of what's to come? But if you go to the mighty warrior first and you skip over the Lord is with you, you miss out what mighty warrior is and what it's rooted in. Because mighty warrior, the definition that he's, the, he, the title that he's given there, is only and will only ever be the case if Gideon grabs a hold of the fact that the Lord is with him. If you're like me, you know, sometimes when it comes to a profound truth, um, it might take a little bit to sink in. I'm grateful that Gideon gives us uh, lots of opportunities uh, to relate with the reminders that he, uh, that continue to unfold in this story. You know, I'm a, I hit my snooze twice this morning. Um, so, you know, sometimes a reminder, whether it's get out of bed, right? You know, nine minutes later, get out of bed, get out of bed, you know, or when it's a reminder that we need that the, the Lord is still at work, he's still with you, he's, he's, he's still leading. Um, Gideon gives us an opportunity to see what this means when he's challenged to go in the strength that you have. Am I not sending you? It's because the Lord is sending him that there's power. Gideon just can't quite see it yet. We continue in verse 15. Pardon me. I love the way the NIV translates this. Pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? I mean, my clan. Have you seen it? It's the weakest in Manasseh. I, I'm the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if now I've found favor in your eyes, give me a sign. Like, could you just, could you just show me? Give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. Please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, all right, I'll wait until you return. Verse 19, Gideon went inside. He prepared a young goat and from an ephah of flour, he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said, hey, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And there's funny stuff all throughout this. I'm, I'm what, you know, I laugh to myself. I'm like, is the angel of the Lord just like not into broth? Or like, what's, what's the deal here? <clears throat> but I think it was more like pour out the broth on top because what you're about ready to see is, is going to be pretty, pretty mind-blowing. Um, but it says, and Gideon did so. <clears throat> Verse 21, then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. What a day. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord has said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abizrites. So Gideon 
has this encounter, <clears throat> gets made known as a mighty warrior because the Lord is with him, <clears throat> asks for a sign to confirm that, uh, makes a personal offering that is consumed by fire in a pretty dramatic way. So now he's mostly convinced, we'll say. As I said, he was a little bit of a reluctant leader. He's, 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 and the Lord is being patient with him. <clears throat> but he's going to need to be absolutely convinced because what comes next is going to be rough. In fact, if you've heard the story of Gideon before, what may bubble to the top is the, the battle uh, that comes to throw off the oppressors um, later. But what comes first, what comes before that, is a battle that he has to fight that starts with repentance, and it starts with getting things right in his own household first. So verse 25, we continue. It says, That same night the Lord said to him, Take a second bull, from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of the height. Use the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down and offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. Because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. And in the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar, demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die because he's broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. So we got to pause there for a second. First of all, understand, this is, this is pretty crazy, but Gideon's dad, who was an Israelite of the tribe of Manasseh, is, uh, Gideon's dad had an altar to a false Canaanite god, Baal, and an Asherah pole that stood behind it that was dedicated to the worship of another false Canaanite god, Asherah, the Canaanite goddess of fertility and Baal's supposed mom, right there on his property, right there on the farm of, of what, where uh, Gideon had, had gathered. And the townspeople used it as a central place of worship to these false pagan gods. It's pretty unbelievable. But the messenger of the Lord tells him first, Gideon, you got to go and you got to take care of some family business before you're ready to tackle the full scale um, oppression of the nation. So he's obedient, right? But he does it at night when the people, and when the people wake up, <clears throat> they're like, who did this? And I wonder, like, this is, this is beyond full dad voice coming out. You know, this is, you know, sometimes it's like you wake up and there's crayon all over the wall, like going down the hallway, you know, and you're like, who did this? You know, or sometimes it's like, you know, there's a big gouge on the side of the car from somebody's bike that, you know, went between the cars and the driveway. And you're like, who did this? You know, those moments you've experienced them before, like, you know, not even a drop in the bucket to the who did this when the townspeople <laughs> woke up that day and, and they said, somebody is going to die for this. More specifically, when they found out it was Gideon, they said, Gideon is going to die for this because you start messing with what's really captured people's hearts. Man, 
what's even really causing them harm, uh, they're threatened by that, and the people were threatened. So walk back with me to the beginning. Gideon was already in a rough spot. He had been threshing grain in the wine press. He was trying to survive. Then he gets summoned up into this cause, and the Lord is with him. He shows it, but it went from just the Midianites being the ones that were ravaging the land and, and uh, killing livestock, now to his own people wanting him dead. And that's a bad day, you know, to say the least. You know, from bad to worse, especially one he's going, hey, all I'm trying to do here is obey the Lord. I'm trying to walk in the way of the Lord, trusting in his presence to do the right thing, and things haven't gotten better, they've gotten worse. If that sounds familiar to you today, you might be in good company with Gideon. Following the way of the Lord, even as you rely on his presence, doesn't always mean that things are immediately going to make sense to you or even to everybody around you, especially when there's some work of repentance that might need to happen in in the hearts of others or in your own heart as well. Fortunately, Gideon's dad steps in. Um, He says a few words as the chief one that should have been offended. It was his altar. Um, But he says in verse 31, hey, if Baal's God... Let's let him defend himself. Kind of an interesting twist in events there. Gideon gets a new nickname out of the deal, Jerob Baal, which means let Baal contend. So it seems like the crisis is temporarily averted. At least they don't want him dead at that very moment, even though things are still tense. But as you can, or if you can imagine, things are about to go from difficult to even worse. Verse 33. Judges 6. It says, Now, all of the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Great. I'm sure (laughs) they're thinking in that moment. We find out through some fancy math in Judges chapter 8, verses 1 through 12, that that force that was mustering there to to make another invasion into the nation of Israel was about 135,000 people strong. So they start to see in the valley of, of Jezreel uh, these, these uh, folks that were mustering with their eyes, their weapons, um, their mission trained on ravaging once again the nation of Israel. If the valley of Jezreel sounds familiar, it should Uh, Casey preached on that a few weeks ago. The Valley of Jezreel is also known as the Valley of Megiddo. If you remember that sermon from uh, the the Israel series where we were looking at some different places, Um, the Hebrew for Har Megiddo, Mount Megiddo, is a toponym from which we get the name Har Megiddo Armageddon. So this is the valley where (laughs) kind of as as a little bit of maybe foreshadowing um, way, way in advance, but this battle, these forces that were mounting up, that, um, that were uh, getting ready to, to try to take out Israel. So, not so fun in these moments, yet the story continues. Good news, good turn. Verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon then, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh and called them to arms and also in Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet him. So the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. 
He busts out his trumpet from like middle school band class. I don't know where he, where he had the thing. It's probably well more, way more versed than that. But the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he says, let's go. And amazingly, people from his own clan, from, from the Abizrites, from the tribe of Manasseh, who just moments earlier, a day earlier, just a little bit earlier, had literally wanted to kill him through the Spirit of, the God, Spirit of God showing up they start to respond, and 32,000 of them gather, which is a good start, right? Uh, but, you know, a trumpet, especially, you know, one you haven't played for a while, maybe, I don't know, uh, doesn't carry too far. So I'm sure, you know, I wonder if, if uh, Gideon's like, all right, well, we got the messengers out, let's hope some more people show up. I mean, you know, some people like to be a little fashionably late, so, you know, hopefully this number is going to grow, you know. And in the meantime, <clears throat> Gideon, just to be sure, he checks back in with the Lord. So verse 36 says, so Gideon, Gideon says to God, hey God, if you'll save Israel by my hand, remember, like you promised, look, I got this fleece here, verse 37, so I'm, I'm going to take this fleece and put it on the threshing floor. And it's interesting that he, misses, he mentions threshing floor. You know, I wonder, you know, where moments are getting intense, do you have a place where it's like, need to go clear my head for a second. I, want, I wonder why, why he mentions the threshing floor. Is he hanging out there again? Does he have this temptation? Is there this, ten, this tension between where the Lord's leading and, and his old ways? But, you know, nice place to hang out, uh, especially when you're outnumbered by an army, uh, too numerous to count. Um, but he says, he continues, <clears throat> I'm going to place this wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and the ground is dry then I'll know that you're there to save Israel by my, by my hand, as you said. Let's try it. Verse 38 says, and that is what happened. Gideon arose early the next day, and he squeezed out the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. And isn't that just like God, you know, exceedingly abundantly more. However, I can't help but think that maybe Gideon was like, you know, there are some nights where we don't have dew. You know, maybe the wind's blowing and I mean, I left that fleece there. Uh, anything could have happened. Uh, a bowl full of water, that was kind of... So, verse 39. Then, God, then Gideon said to God, uh, don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, let's make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. And that night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and the ground was covered with dew. So, at this point, if you're keeping track, Gideon had heard from the prophet. Israel had been sent a prophet from the Lord. He had heard the messenger of the Lord that came, met with him under the oak tree. Remember the broth, you know, all those things. Fire consumed an offering that he made and burned, the, burned it up completely. He had his life spared when the townspeople wanted him dead for trying to get his own house in order. He survived that. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. He blew his trumpet. 35,000 people respond. He did the fleece thing twice. The Lord worked it out just the way that he asked. Twice. If you've ever needed a reminder, I mean multiple reminders, <clears throat> the Lord was patient in showing him time and time again, I'm here. I'm present. My presence is what you need. 
Know it. Trust it. Live into it. Believe it. But just so you really do, God says, all right, now it's my turn. It's my turn to make sure that you know, Gideon. <clears throat> you know those 32,000 that answered the call? We're going we're gonna to get to work on that. So we continue in chapter 7, verse 1. It says, early in the next morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod, the camp of Midian that was north of them in the valley, or the camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the, near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. And I can't imagine like what was going through his head in this, in this moment. Like the math, like carry the one, look at the people, more numerous than sands on the seashore, locusts, you know, all these different things. It's like, say what? Too many men. <clears throat> he says, um, I cannot deliver, uh, the Lord said, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast about me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Like, it's a dangerous thing to say, right? But Gideon's probably like, all right, I'm starting to get it, Lord. Like, you know, people have answered the call. They've rallied around me. They wanted to kill me. Like, we're in this together. We got 35,000. So, all right, anybody that's afraid, you can, you know, you can, you can make your way out of here if, if you want. The verse says, so 22,000 men left. What? 10,000 remains. Okay, Lord. Okay. Okay, I see what you're doing here. I'm with you. I got it. Loud and clear. Wait, what's that? Wait, you're not done? Okay, verse 4. It says, but the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I'll thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say that one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. Then the Lord said to him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those, separate those from those who kneel down to drink. So we're talking about like, you know, scooping up the water and lapping it. Maybe you've, you've done that when you don't have a cup versus those who, you know, stick their head in the water and, and uh, take a drink that way. Um, so it says 300 of them cupped their hands, lapping like dogs, and all the rest got down on their knees to drink. Then the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. But God wasn't done. He knew that Gideon had already struggled to get on board, so he continued to reveal his presence as it was going before Gideon and the 300 men that were left. So verse 8 says, Now the camp of Midian lay below them in the valley. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it to your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura." And listen to what they're saying. Afterwards, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley as thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. 
Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and their whole camp into his hands. First of all, what a dream. Like a, a loaf of bread, like barley bread, like I don't know, why not rye? Why not wheat? Why not, you know, I don't know. Um, but something as, as seemingly unthreatening as a loaf of bread rolling down a hill into a camp, which is kind of interesting. Now, I wonder, I wonder how that inspired Gideon's creativity. I wonder in that moment um, what, what he sensed um, the Lord inspiring him to actually do. But um, can you imagine them on the outside of the tent, him and his, his servant listening? You know, I, I, they thought it was so great that they actually had a, a spontaneous worship moment right there on the spot. Now, if you're in an enemy camp and you're listening through a tent, that might not be what you think of as the right time or place to break out and worship. But that was what happened. Sometimes the presence of God is just overwhelming in an undeniable way, and it's like worship is the only right and true response in that moment. So verse 15 says, When they heard the dream and the interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and cried out, Get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all the men with torches inside. And I know there have been a few bizarre things about this story already, but the list of what Gideon places in the hands of the 300 is a little strange yet. So we know Gideon was fond of the trumpet, so you, you got your trumpet? Check. You got your jar? Check. You got your torch? Check. That's it. Say, what? You know, I'm sure the 300 are like, wait, did I, did I miss the line with like the sharp pointy objects? Like, <clears throat> no shields? Nope. No spears? Nope. No, no swords? No. Unconventional, but bold. See, finally, I think, Gideon is starting to take action in a way that he's listening to. He's relying on the presence of the Lord God who'd been pursuing him the whole time. Verse 17, watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of camp, do as exactly as I do. When I and all those who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And so watches were from, from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., there were three watches, four hours each. So 6 to 10, 10 to 2, 2 to 6. So the beginning of the middle watch is about 10 p.m. And if you've ever done shift work, where maybe it's like the changing of the shift, and some people are wrapping up some stuff, and other people are coming on, and sometimes there's a little lull in between where it's like the perfect time for confusion to happen, right? Um, strategically, that's, that's the moment. So um, getting in the 300 
reach the edge of the camp, verse 19, in the, middle of the, in the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard, they blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hand. The three companies blew their trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping their torches in their left hand and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites, Midianites cry, ran, crying out as they fled. And when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their own swords. The army fled to Beth Shittoth during toward Zareth, as far as the border of Abel, Morah, and Tabith. See, I told you Casey was giving me all these crazy names to pronounce. <sighs> Israelites from Nephtali and Asher and Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordans ahead of them as far as Beth Barak. And the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8 continue on and talk about the pursuit that ensues. But Judges chapter 8 verse 10 mentions that 120,000 people fell by their own swords as they were surrounded that night and what they thought was a huge army that was getting ready to descend on them. And in that confusion, 120,000 that brought swords to be used on Israel used them on one another in the ensuing chaos. Now, 15,000 after that were pursued and overtaken and routed by Gideon and his men. And victory comes through a move of God that did what seemed impossible through a willing few that were totally reliant on his presence. The temptation, though, didn't end there. In Judges chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, we read like the aftermath. You know, you think about the heroes, like, you know, the victory's ours, we've done it, we've made it. You know, and the Israelites say to Gideon in verse 22 of chapter 8, rule over us. You, your son, your grandson, you saved us from the hand of Midian. Quite a turn of events from we want you to die to rule over us. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you, but the Lord will rule over you. And finally, he got it. Finally, he knew it wasn't about him. It was a long journey that started in a different kind of a desperate place in that in that, west, in that wine press, but he finally understood what our bottom line is today, that life was best lived desperate for the presence of God in all things. And that's, that's where we're landing today, this idea of being desperate for the presence of God in the lives that we live. Because if you miss the presence of God, you've missed it. So what do, we, what do we learn from this story in addition to what we've already been unpacking along the way? Here's just a few quick tools for our toolbox when it comes to working toward the presence of God being central for each of our lives today. I think we can know this. First of all, God is at work. Even in dark times of oppression, even in the midst of poverty, even in the midst of difficulty, God is at work. We can see that plainly through the story of, of Gideon um, as, as he's following after the Lord in this situation. 
Second thing I think we can know is we can know that God can raise up a mighty warrior through the strength that he gives, even out of a family that maybe hasn't been helpful in laying the best of foundations. Maybe you've been in that place. Or like Gideon, you're, you're in a place where you're like, man, I, I, I don't know. Do you know where I come from? Like, do you know the strength that I have that you're, you're talking about? Um, did you know that a recent Barna study found that most practicing Christians in the, in the United States, 59%, almost two-thirds of those that are in Christ, say that they came to faith because of the influence of a believer in their household where they grew up. And that, that is a, that's a powerful statistic to think about the influence that, that you have. Now, on the, on the flip side, um, another 23% of people in Christ would say that they grew up in a household with a negative example of Christianity, yet still came to a saving faith in Christ. 15% of Christians say that they had no exposure to Christianity at home. So what does it look like, church? What does it look like? Families, parents, grandparents, mentors, aunts, and uncles to put on display the presence of God made evident through a changed life, even in our homes. Starting in, in, in the place where God would have us with those that are, that are right around us. The next generation needs you to lead the way in modeling a life changed by God's presence. I think some, an, another thing that we can learn from the text today is sometimes engaging with what God wants to do in your life is a process. And I'm so thankful for the story of Gideon, seeing this process. It reminds me of Romans 2.4 that says, God's kindness is what's intended to lead you to repentance. And I, I love that. I need that. I think it's so important to ask ourselves, okay, so where are we in the process? You know, if you would jump in in the middle of the story of Gideon, anywhere where, where he'd be at, you know, sometimes there's some ups and downs in that journey, but it's a process that the Lord is patiently leading him through and leads us through as well. I think another important thing to think about when it comes to this passage is, is to go, okay, so what's in your hand? What's something that God has, has placed in your hand? It might just seem like a jar or a torch or a trumpet from middle school that you haven't dusted off for a really long time against an army, army that's too numerous to count. And maybe you felt yourself in the place where it just seems overwhelming, but, but what might God do through the willingness, willingness that you bring through something that he's already placed in your hand? I think we got to stay humble. we got to remember who the victory belongs to. It's all because of the Lord's presence, because of his provision in the lives of those who trust him. So don't let up. Don't let off. The next generation is in great need of the continual humility that it takes, uh, the continual humility it takes to keep the Lord and his presence central in our lives. So when you put your complete trust in the Lord and he's all you've got, then his presence will be what matters most. That's what being desperate for his presence really looks like.
We can get excited about a lot of things in this passage. We can get excited about leadership. We can get excited about doing a little with what you've got, about really cleaning house spiritually, about renewed discipleship initiatives as parents, about bringing peace to conflict, about turning places of impoverished desolation into places of flourishing, about calling a family or a city or a nation to repentance. But if you miss the presence of God, you've missed it. If you miss the presence and the power of God who created all things, who sustains all things, who's restoring all things, you've missed it. We need his presence. We need his power. It's the only thing that can change us. It's the only thing that can change the things that hurt the worst in our daily lives. May God's presence be known. May it be experienced today in your life, in my life. May it be lived in all things. We pray that the Lord would revive us now. Let's pray, and we're going to have an opportunity to respond together. Lord, thank you so much for your work in our lives. Thank you for your daily presence. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for the ways that that you lead us and and continue to show us your faithfulness and, and allow us to be a part of what you're doing, despite the fact that it's only because of the strength that you give us uh, that, that we have the ability to jump into your story. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his grace. Thank you for the ways that uh, you want to continue to break down strongholds and, and uh, work in unimaginable ways through your presence at work in the lives of your people. Lord, we pray that you'd continue to lead us out now, continue to transform us, and continue to be at the center of all that we do and say and live. And it's all for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So in just a second, we're going to have an opportunity to respond. And I don't know what it might be for you today. Maybe um, as, as we have an opportunity to sing, first and foremost, the primary thing would be to worship, just like, just like Gideon did right outside that tent, to say, Lord, thank you so much for your presence in my life. You know, maybe it's a moment of repentance. You know, the steps are open for prayer this morning. There'll be people down front to talk if you want somebody to pray with you or talk with you. Maybe like Gideon, it's starting with your own house and saying, man, there's some stuff I need to lay bare uh, to, to be in the place where I know um, I'm, I'm all in with what God wants from you. Maybe it's a, a first step of obedience. If you want somebody to talk with, if you want somebody to pray with you, some folks will be down here. The next step room will also be open. If, if you want to hang out there um, after the service, we have some folks that would be glad to to continue to connect with you, maybe help you think about the next step from here. So um, as we have an opportunity to respond, I invite you to stand with me. The praise team is going to lead us, and we're going to sing together.